We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. This is the story of the one. As head of maintenance at a concert hall, he knows the show must always go on. That's why he works behind the scenes, ensuring every light is working, the HVAC is humming, and his facility shines. With Granger's supplies and solutions for every challenge he faces, plus 24-7 customer support, his venue never misses a beat. Call quickgranger.com or just stop by. Granger, for the ones who get it done. What's up, y'all? It's Drewski, and I've teamed up with Mountain Dew to produce a hilarious new basketball podcast called The Dew Zone with Drewski. Learn the backstories of your favorite ballers and celebrities like Jamal Murray. Did you have, like, a favorite team? Was it the Raptors at the time or no? Was the Raptors even started around that time? Come on, bro. I ain't that old, fam. <laughs> You're talking like I'm 50. Taylor Rooks, Asia Wilson, and many more. You won't want to miss this. Listen to The Dew Zone with Drewski on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and wherever you listen to podcasts. Episode 40 of the Al Galdi Podcast. It is Thursday, April 15th, 2021, as yes, the episode count has reached 40. This is 40, like that movie from a few years ago. Episode 40, when it comes to the Al Galdi Podcast. Will there be some version of a midlife crisis on this podcast? Will this episode end up dying its hair blonde, buying a sports car, Dating someone 20 years younger, moving into a condo to recapture the podcast youth. I don't know. I can't promise anything. You'll just have to wait and see. I can promise you some lively discussion when it comes to DC sports. We have names. We can name names when it comes to the new name for the Washington football team. Have you heard or seen the names that are under consideration for the new name? Wait until you hear some of these. I'll be getting into that next segment. Uh, Washington Rubies, anyone? Washington Swifts, anyone? Yeah, brace yourself for some of these. Also with the Washington football team, we on Wednesday had the introductory Zoom press conference for the new Chilean tight end, Samis Reyes, a man who has never played a down of football, but is an athletic freak and is trying to make the team. I'll take you through the best of what he had to say. And welcome on a special guest, Kent Lee Platty, 
He is the NFL analytics director for Pro Football Network. He is the inventor of the relative athletic score of analyzing player measurements and metrics from scouting combines and pro days. It is the relative athletic score in which Samis Reyes basically broke the scale. So we'll talk Samis, but also the nature of combine slash pro day drills in general. What do they mean? How should we look at them? It is that time of year, right? NFL draft season in which we're inundated with heights, weights, 40 times, bench press totals, verts, broad jumps, etc. What's the value truly of this stuff? And Kent knows the Detroit Lions well, so we'll ask him about Martin Mayhew. I will post game Wednesday wins for the Nationals and yes, Wizards. Good win for the Nationals at the St. Louis Cardinals on Wednesday afternoon and another win for the Wiz this time at the Sacramento Kings late on Wednesday night. Uh, Also, the Capitals, they have extended one of their most pleasant surprises of the season. We'll discuss that a little bit later on. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Speaking of the Caps, I got this email from Eric. He writes, Al, the Atlanta Braves won five National League pennants in the 1990s rather than just three. Yes, thank you, Eric. You are correct. I flaked on that on Wednesday's podcast when comparing the caps of the Alex Ovechkin era to the Braves of the 1990s and 2000s. Braves won the World Series in 95, lost in the World Series in 91, 92, 96, and 99. So five pennants in nine years in the 1990s. That's different from the caps. I mean, the caps won the Stanley Cup in 2018, but otherwise in the Ovechkin era, haven't advanced past the second round at all. All right, Caps in their entire history have advanced past the second round just three times, 90, 98, and 2018. So it is different in that regard, Caps of now versus the Braves of the 90s and the aughts. That Braves run really was something else. The Braves finished first in their division, whichever it was, the National League West or National League East because it changed. Yeah, don't ask me why, but the Atlanta Braves were in the National League West for years. But the Braves finished first in their division 14 out of 15 years from 1991 through 2005. And the lone season in which the Braves did not finish first in their division during that stretch was the 1994 strike-shortened season for which there was no postseason. That, that is incredible. I don't know that that will ever happen again. First in your division in 14 out of 15 years and in all 14 years consecutively in which there actually is a postseason. So guess what? I got the shot. Yes, I got the first of my two COVID-19 vaccine shots. And yes, I have lived to tell about it. Uh, the left delt is a little sore, but otherwise, no problems, at least not physically. Uh, psychologically and emotionally, you could argue I have many problems. But physically, I do feel fine. I got the Moderna vaccine. Or is it Moderna? Uh, I don't know. I've heard it both ways. But I am here. We'll see if this show uh, ends up being a national situation, right? A bunch of Nats players got vaccinated on Monday with the Johnson & Johnson vaccine. And then the Nats lost at the Cardinals on Tuesday night, 14-3. So if this episode of the podcast ends up being my version of a 14-3 loss, uh, then I have my excuse. But with excuses, ha- have you been following this NFL offseason workout stuff? How the NFL Players Association, this is great has been pitching a fit over the league wanting to get back to having a more normal offseason. Oh, how dare they? How dare they ask you guys to work this offseason? On Tuesday and Wednesday, players from four teams, the Denver Broncos, Seattle Seahawks, Tampa Bay Buccaneers, and Detroit Lions, announced they would be foregoing voluntary offseason workouts due to the ongoing pandemic 
and concerns regarding safety. The NFLPA, in fact, has said publicly it believes the offseason program should be exclusively virtual, and it is urging its members not to attend the portions of the program that are voluntary under the CBA. Yes, keep everything shut down, says the NFLPA. I just, I, I get such a kick out of this. This is, to me, as phony and as transparent as can be. And understand the point I'm about to make. It's not that you shouldn't be still careful. It's not that the pandemic isn't still going on. You should still be careful. The pandemic is still going on. But the whole point of this from the players isn't about safety, okay? I don't buy that for one second. These guys are in their 20s and 30s. These guys are incredibly healthy. Most of them are very wealthy. They have access to medical care that you and I can only dream of. This is about not wanting to participate in these offseason programs. This is about not wanting to show up for work this offseason. Players hate these offseason programs. They're voluntary, so much of them, but they're sort of like voluntold, where it's like, yeah, yeah, don't have to do it, wink, wink, but you really do need to do it, wink, wink. And so players have never liked that. They balked at these workouts for years. And so now that they have this excuse, the pandemic, they're going to play this card as much as the card can be played. Well, good for the NFL, because the NFL on Wednesday did announce offseason plans in a momo sent to all 32 teams. And those plans basically, in a nutshell, are get back to work, okay? Stop complaining, stop excuse-making, and get back to work. Now, again, so much of this stuff is voluntary, but as we all know by now, it's voluntary with a wink and a nod. But you know what? If you don't like that from a player's perspective, then negotiate a better deal the next time the CBA comes up. The league's off-season program for 2021 will be nine weeks in total length, all portions of it voluntary except for one mandatory minicamp which will take place in the third phase of the program in a date range between May 24th and June 18th. This is essentially what the off-season program is every year. So sorry, you may have to show up for a mandatory minicamp, okay? It's not the end of the world. You'll be just fine. We're vaccinating millions of people per day. And oh, by the way, the NFL did a great job with the pandemic last season. Zero evidence of in-game, in-practice, on-field spread, okay? The league handled the pandemic very well. So this stuff about we're concerned about our safety. No, you're not. You don't want to show up to work, okay? And that, and I get it, okay? We all love to stay at home all the time, all right? But the league is not going to fall for this, and neither should you as a football fan. And I love this nugget regarding all this. The NFLPA did not agree to this off-season plan, but the league holds the right to unilaterally implement rules as permitted under the collective bargaining agreement with the players' union. So again, if you don't like it, negotiate a better deal. Otherwise, stop using the pandemic as an excuse. So many of us have had to work through the pandemic, and so many of us aren't making what these players make, aren't getting treated as these players get treated. I don't hold against any of these guys the money they make. I want all of them to make every last penny possible. But stop with this, oh, we fear for our safety. Get out of here, okay? Get out of here. You're not a bunch of 90-year-olds in a nursing home, okay? If you're a bunch of 90-year-olds in a nursing home, yeah, I would fear for your safety with the COVID-19 pandemic, and I wouldn't be making you show up to a bunch of OTA workouts, all right? So I I do think they've actually shut down all the OTA workouts in the nursing homes, okay? But that's not your situation here. You're NFL players. You're young, you're healthy, you're mostly wealthy, and you have access to all kinds of things that most people can only dream about from a medical care perspective, all right? So buckle up, and I think you'll be just fine.
All right, so with everything going on with the Washington football team over the last few months, right? And there has been a lot going on. We've had free agency and the signings of guys like Ryan Fitzpatrick and Curtis Samuel and William Jackson III. We've had this lead up to the upcoming NFL draft. We've had Dan Snyder buying out the disgruntled minority investors. All kinds of stuff has been happening. And so with all that stuff happening, it's been a while since we've had an update on the name. Oh, yeah. Our team doesn't have a name. It is the Washington football team. We know that the name of the team will be the Washington football team for the upcoming season, but we don't know much more. The last thing we heard was back on March 23rd when Washington football team president Jason Wright told WFT insider John Keim of ESPN that the name Washington football team had gone from a generic placeholder to a name that was being strongly considered to be the permanent one. Quote, there is a set of folks that have warmed to the Washington football team. Some of the things that are emerging from that are the Washington football team has something that ties deeply to our history. It feels like that isn't jettisoning all the things we have been in the past, whereas something that's completely new might feel that way. It's important for a substantial part of our fan base to feel that this is a continuation of something versus a complete reset, something brand new, end quote. And I sounded off on this a few weeks ago on this podcast. I am totally fine with Washington football team as a temporary name, even for multiple seasons, as is going to end up being the case. But I want no part of Washington football team as the permanent name. It's not a name. Football team is not a name. You're essentially the team with no name if you are the Washington football team. Pick a name. You got to pick a name, okay? A permanent name of Washington football team would require us calling the team Washington because football team is just dumb. No one's going to say the football team. You're going to say Washington, and Washington is an awkward and cumbersome way of referring to our team. Washington sounds distant. Washington sounds unfamiliar. Nobody says Washington when they talk about the Nationals. They say the Nationals or the Nats. You know, we say the Capitals or the Caps, the Wizards or the Wiz. People who aren't fans of those teams call them Washington. We are fans of those teams, so we call them the Nats, the Caps, the Wiz, like we used to call the football team the Skins. You call your teams by their team names. And as I pointed out, Washington is an onerous word to say. It's three syllables, Washington. You want a one-syllable means of referring to your team. Again, Nats, Caps, Wiz, Skins, Terps, etc. I don't like saying Washington, okay? I still am not used to, nor am I warming up to saying Washington. I want a name. I'm willing to wait. I want the team to get this right. But eventually, to me, you got to pick a name. Okay, so anyway, an interesting thing emerged on Wednesday. And that interesting thing is that the Washington football team sent to season ticket holders a variety of versions of a survey pertaining to the new name. The surveys asked for season ticket holders to pick their two most preferred names from lists of potential names while making clear that these names on these lists were not final candidates for the permanent name, just that these are names in the mix. I want you to take a listen to the names on some of these various surveys, okay? And if you know of more names, if you received a survey, let me know of what was on your survey. But among the names on these surveys was the Washington football team. Washington football team, in case you had doubts, is very much in the mix to be the next name. 
And I think there is a sense that it may be the favorite right now to be the next name. I hope that's not the case. But understand, the Washington football team spent a lot of money to rebrand many things with the Washington football team, including things at FedEx Field. Last season, right, during which there were barely any fans at games at FedEx Field, the Washington football team still spent the money and took the time to rebrand a bunch of stuff at FedEx Field with the Washington football team. That's not cheap. That costs a lot of money and takes a lot of manpower. Seems to me you don't do that if there's not at least a decent chance that the Washington football team ends up being the permanent name. Washington football team, whether we like it or not, is a thing. Now, other names that were on these surveys, the Washington Red Wolves, the name that caught fire on social media last year, a name that personally I am open to. I'm not one of these people who looks down upon Red Wolves. You know, the whole idea of, oh, it's a dumb name. It's a childish name. All of these names are dumb and childish. It's sports at the end of the day. All of this is dumb and childish, okay? Red Wolves, I think, has a lot going for it. I think Wolves is a cool name. Red Wolves would allow you to keep HTTR, which I think matters. I think there's real value in that if you can keep the whole hashtag HTTR thing. The Red Wolf is an endangered species found primarily in the southeastern United States. So there is that of, you know, it is an animal that is within our region. Uh, Red Wolf is a superhero identity used by several fictional characters appearing in comic books. So you could maybe do a whole thing with that. There is a military tie when it comes to Red Wolves. You may recall the statement put out by Ron Rivera all the way back last July 3rd mentioned wanting to honor the military some way with the next name. Red Wolves was a helicopter squadron of the United States Navy Reserve. So there is a military tie-in with Red Wolves. There also, though, is a Native American tie-in with Red Wolves because Red Wolf is a famous Native American who was born in Kansas in the 1800s, died in 1937. And the spirit of the Red Wolf is a thing in Native American culture. So you might start offending people or at least people who want to be offended for those who aren't offended at all. Uh, so that could open up a can of worms you don't want to open up. But I do think Red Wolves has a lot going for it. So anyway, interesting that Red Wolves was among the names on these surveys. Red Tails was on these surveys. I think Red Tails is another name to be open to, although personally, I would not advocate for Red Tails. I would advocate for Red Wolves before I would advocate for Red Tails. But Red Tails would allow you to keep HTTR. Red Tails does have a very clear military connection. The Red Tails That was the nickname for the Tuskegee Airmen with the first unit of African-American military aviators. The problem with Red Tails is Tails. Like, that's just not a very intimidating name. You know, Tails Cowboys this Sunday doesn't have quite the same feel, now does it, as Skins Cowboys. Wolves Cowboys, I could get behind that. I, I think there would be something to that. But anyway, the Washington Red Tails was on these surveys. You had the Washington Wild Hogs. So for those who want to honor the Hogs, Wild Hogs is on the list. I would not do that. You got to stop trying to recreate the 1980s at some point with this franchise, but I thought that was interesting. Uh, the Washington Riders was a name as well. And then we get into some of the dreck. And I mean, some of these names, <laughs> you can't be serious about some of these names, okay? You know, I wonder if some of these names are being put out there so that whatever ends up being the actual next name doesn't look so bad because some of these names are awful. Okay, here we go. And our old pal Steve Spurrier is going to help us out here, okay? The Washington Riders. Not very good. No. The Washington Aviators. Not very good. No. 
The Washington Beacons. Not very good. The Washington Belters. Not very good. The Washington Wayfarers. Huh? Not very good. The Washington Ambassadors. Ooh, because an ambassador really scares you. Not very good. <laughs> the Washington Griffins. Wait a second. We're going to name the team after Robert Griffin III? Not very good. No, heck no. We ain't doing that. Ain't going to do no Washington Griffins. The Washington Armada. Not very good. The Washington Rising. Not very good. The Washington Swifts. Who even says that word anymore? Swift or the Swifts. Not very good. And the Washington Rubies. Not very good. Yeah, not very good. Not very impressive. Uh, I don't see a lot of hashtag movements beginning for the likes of Beacons, Belters, Wayfarers, Griffins, Swifts, and Rubies. Sorry. Uh, good luck trying to capture the 18 to 35 demographic with those nicknames, okay? Good luck trying to capture the younger fan with those nicknames. Here is something else, too, about all these names that made their way into these surveys. The soccer names. This is another thing that's become impossible to ignore. This movement to give the Washington football team a permanent name of a soccer team, okay? Here were some of the soccer-like names that appeared on these surveys. First City Football Club, FC, FC. Not very good. Washington, D.C. Football Club, D.C., FC. Not very good. Washington Capital City Football Club, CC, FC. Not very good. Yeah, the team seems to have a real thing with the new name being that of a soccer team. Jason Wright's a soccer fan. I don't know if he's the impetus for all this, but all this stuff about FC Washington, Washington FC, FC FC, CC FC. How about this? You go with a soccer name with an FC? Uh, what the F-U-C-K? How about that? You want FC in your name? How about you try that as, as the next name, all right? I mean, enough with the soccer names, okay? And I'm not some anti-soccer person. I got no problem with soccer, but keep the world separate. The Washington football team is a football team. American football. The Washington football team is not a soccer team. We don't try to force football names on soccer teams. You know, nobody's telling the Bundesliga to call the team the Frankfurt Raiders or call another team the Berlin Broncos. Like, no, that's a soccer league. You have soccer names. The NFL is an American football league. And so you have American football names. Like, stop trying to shove the soccer stuff down our throats as Washington football team fans. Look, I know. People are resistant to change. People are going to have all kinds of problems with all kinds of potential new names. I get that. I understand that. I do. But there are some good candidates. Red Wolves is a legit candidate. Warriors is a legit candidate. Pick out of those two, if nothing else, and move forward, and people will get on board. And one last thought on all this, and I do wonder about this. I have no problem with the Washington football team incorporating the fan base in all this trying to make this into a fun process, you know, doing a bunch of stuff on social media, mailing out surveys, etc. Like, there's nothing wrong with that. We are a beaten down, abused fan base. The team owes it to us to try to make us feel better about ourselves and about our roles in all of this. But don't you have to wonder at the end of the day, is all of this just for show? 
Like, what do you think is more likely? That the Washington football team is legitimately incorporating the thoughts of the fans into this incredibly monumental decision of what the next name is going to be for the franchise. Or that deep in the corner offices in Ashburn, the likes of Dan Snyder, Tanya Snyder. We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Jason Wright et al. already know more or less what the next name will be, or at the very least know out of a list of, I don't know, three to five names, what the next name will be. Like, I really wonder, is all of this stuff about fan involvement and taking fans along for the ride, that is the rebranding of the Washington football team, like, is that what's happening here? Or is it maybe that this is just for show and that the team already knows more or less what the next name is going to be? Something to think about. All right, guys, look, no one's perfect. Even the best baseball players strike out with the bases loaded. The best golfers sometimes three-putt with the tournament on the line. So if you feel like you come up short in the bedroom sometimes, it's perfectly okay. But if it's bothering you, there are options. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now. With Roman, you can get a free online evaluation and ongoing care for ED, all from the comfort and privacy of your home. A U.S. licensed healthcare professional will work with you to find the best treatment plan. If medication is appropriate, it ships to you free with two-day shipping. The whole process is straightforward and discreet. Getting started is simple. Just go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi and complete an online visit. Take care of your ED without leaving home. Complete an online visit today to connect with a doctor and take care of it. Go to GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi now to get $15 off your first month. Look, there's a straightforward way to take care of your ED. GetRoman.com slash AlGaldi. Get started now to save $15 on your first month of treatment. All right, so we on Wednesday had something from an NFL team that we either almost never have or never had had. An introductory press conference for a player who has never played the sport. Not a player who has not played at the NFL level, a player who has never played the sport at any meaningful level. The Washington football team on Wednesday holding an introductory Zoom press conference for the new tight end, Samis Reyes, who we talked about in depth on Wednesday's installment of the Al Galdi podcast. Washington on Tuesday announcing the signing of Samis Reyes, an unrestricted free agent tight end, a fascinating case study 
Reyes was born in Chile. He would be the first Chilean-born player to play in the NFL. He played college basketball at Tulane for two seasons, didn't play much, graduated from Tulane in 2018, played for the Chilean national team in 2019, and then in May 2020 decided to try what he had been told to try for a while, football. Reyes spent 10 weeks training at IMG Academy in Florida, then worked out in front of scouts at the University of Florida's Pro Day this past March 31st. The idea was just to showcase himself and then hopefully enter the NFL via this International Player Pathway program. Instead, Reyes did so well at Florida's Pro Day that Washington now has actually signed him as an unrestricted free agent. Here was Reyes on Wednesday on his training at IMG. Yeah, so uh, I've been training for the past 10 weeks with IMG in Florida with the NFL's International Pathway Program. So uh, besides an additional week in high school, that's all the organized football learning that I have done. So it's been those 10 weeks. I think it was a very condensed 10 weeks, and we learned a lot of stuff. We have prospects from all over the world there, and the coaches were great. Great. Um, they put together a great program for us. I'm um, starting from scratch for me, you know, making the transition from basketball. I had to start from the beginning. So I'm just very thankful to be a part of the NFL International Pathway Program. And without them, I wouldn't be here. So, yeah, feeling good. Yeah, and his English, obviously, is quite good. But it really is amazing. Washington giving a contract for whatever amount. I mean, it's not some big money deal. But giving a contract to a guy who has never played at any meaningful level, never played football in high school, never played collegiately, hasn't played football professionally. I mean, I suppose at some point he's played a pickup game. I'm sure there were some scrimmages at IMG, but like that is amazing, isn't it? He hasn't played at any level, and now he's being thrust into the highest level that there is. Here was Reyes on Wednesday on how ready he is to play football. Yeah, I feel ready. Um, Even though I haven't been playing the sport, I've been training for this my whole life. You know, I came to this country when I was 14 with the dream of making the NBA. Uh, I made the wrong decision back then. <laughs> Should have been sticking to football from the beginning. Uh, you know, I, I didn't know that at the time. We don't play football in Chile, but I'm ready, man. I've been training my whole life for this moment. I am well prepared. I have done everything in my power to go out there and, and just feel good. And right now it's all about just sitting down, learning the playbook, learning the ter- terminology, and, you know, getting acclimated with my teammates and representing the organization at the highest level. He is confident. There's no doubt about that. I just really wonder, like, what's going to happen the first time at Washington football team training camp, assuming he makes it that far, that he just gets walloped, okay? Like, what's going to happen the first time DeShazer Everett just comes crashing into Samis Reyes' sternum as Samis is going across the middle? What's going to happen the first time that Cameron Curl comes flying in like a missile and nearly decapitates Samis Reyes? And those are Samis's teammates. Like, think about what might happen in a preseason game. Think about what might happen come the regular season. Like, I just, that's the thing about the NFL. It's not just about the speed, the terminology, the schematics. It's about the violence, okay? Let's, let, let's, let's call a spade a spade. The NFL is incredibly violent. These guys are freakish athletes. These people are assassins on the field. And if you've never been hit, if you've never taken a hit, period, Ah, that just to me is such an adjustment that you have to end up making. But Samis Reyes himself is an athletic freak. There's no doubt about that. We talked about that 
on Wednesday's podcast. I mentioned Samis Reyes killing it at Florida's Pro Day. How well did Reyes do at the Florida Pro Day? Coming up next segment is our special guest, Kent Lee Platty, the NFL Analytics Director for Pro Football Network. Per Kent Lee Platty's relative athletic score, which grades a player's measurements and NFL scouting combine slash pro day metrics on a zero to 10 scale compared to his peer group, Samis Reyes registered as the most athletic size adjusted tight end to ever enter the NFL ended up putting up pro day measurables that compared favorably with those of the tight end who everyone is falling all over themselves for, the Florida tight end, Kyle Pitts. Samis Reyes bench pressed 225 pounds 31 times. Pitts did so 22 times. Samis Reyes had a vertical jump of 40 inches. Pitts' vertical jump, 33 and a half inches. And Samis Reyes did this despite being 15 pounds heavier than Pitts, 260 versus 245. Now, Pitts did run a faster 40, 444 versus 465, but Samis Reyes, at essentially the same height and 15 pounds heavier, had a vertical jump six and a half inches better than Pitts's. Think about that. Here was Samis on Wednesday on that performance at the Florida Pro Day. Yeah, um, I was... I was so locked in that day. You know, I have been training so hard for an opportunity just to be noticed, just to, you know, get a little bit of uh, exposure. And I knew that was my day. So I, I worked really, really hard to for that day. And then once we knew it was a Florida and once we knew, you know, it was going to be a good one and, you know, a lot of scouts came, I just went out there and performed. You know, I there was no sense of, you know, nervousness in my body. I was just locked in. And I told myself, whatever happens – just keep going, you know, don't, don't stop, just work. And I did what I've been doing for years. You know, I had to jump, I had to do my bench press test, I had to run, I had to catch a few footballs, nothing new. All right, so why Washington? Remember, the whole idea with the Florida Pro Day was for Samis Reyes to showcase himself to where he would make it into this International Player Pathway Program. The International Player Pathway Program, by the way, is a program in which players allowed into the program are allocated to NFL teams in one division in each conference. The NFC East and AFC East actually were the divisions for 2020. Washington actually got a player via the International Player Pathway Program last summer, received a German defensive lineman, David Botta, in July 2020. So that was the idea for Samis Reyes at the Florida Pro Day. The expectation was never that he was going to actually get signed by a team at some point in the near future, and yet that is what ends up happening. Samis Reyes killed it at the Florida Pro Day, and the guy now has himself a contract with an NFL team. Here was Reyes on Wednesday on speaking with Washington at his pro day and conversations with Washington prior to signing with the team. Yeah, so um, of course, a pro day was great for me. I think it really put me on the map. Um, but I'm, I, I've been living in Washington for the past year. You know, my family's here, my girlfriend's family's here. And uh, I love the city. It's a place where I, for, for the first time in my life, it felt like home. You know, for me, coming from a different country, I have been moving from place to place since I was 14 years old. You know, uh, this past year was the first time I had my own place, my own house. So it was, it just felt right. And, you know, I had conversations with over 20 teams and I had over seven, ple- uh, seven um, trips planned out. And once Washington, which was the number one team on my list, reached out to me at Pro Day, 
right after we got done, I was like, I really want to go there. I spoke to my family. I spoke to everyone here. I knew the, the, this past year they, you know, they had a, a good year and they had a new coach and it's, it's just, it felt right. It felt the right culture, the right organization. And of course, coach Rivera is a guy who I truly admire. So, uh, I'm, I'm just truly blessed to be here. Yeah. And by far the best reveal from Samis Reyes at his introductory Zoom press conference on Wednesday was him saying that he drove for DoorDash during the COVID-19 pandemic last year. How great is that? That this guy, I mean, here's a guy, he was driving for DoorDash about a year ago, and now he is a member of the Washington football team. It's not unlike Taylor Heineke, who was taking classes and preparing for finals for ODU when he gets the call from Washington last season. Hey, Taylor, can you come play quarterback for us? And then he ends up playing out of his mind in a wild card round loss to the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. I mean, it's just, it's, it's incredible some of the stories we've had with Washington. Like, think about that for a moment now, okay? You've got the Samis Reyes story. You've got the Taylor Heineke story. You, of course, have the Alex Smith story. You have something like the rise of Logan Thomas last season, out of nowhere. The rise of a seventh-round rookie in Cameron Curl, out of nowhere. Conversely, you also have some negative stories, right? The complete collapse of Dwayne Haskins to where he is cut before the end of his second season off having been a first-round quarterback. I mean, that's incredible. That almost never happens in the NFL. It's just, it's been such a dramatic last, what, 12 to 18 months with this franchise in so many ways, not the least of which is all of these incredible individual player stories that we have. And we're talking about another one right now in Samis Reyes. Reyes on Wednesday on conversations with other teams prior to signing with Washington. My agent, Tabitha Plummer, she uh, had communication with, I don't know, 15, 20 other teams. Uh, my phone was blowing up and we had, we were going to schedule seven visits. We had two of those already scheduled with Atlanta and with Kansas City. And, uh, we just decided that, uh, my first priority was always Washington. It's the place where I wanted to play, where I wanted to go from day one. And I told her if they showed interest, I'll go, I want to go there first. So once I came here, um, you know, we, we were able to figure out all the, te- all the terms of the contract. And it just felt right. It felt right once I walked into the building. I didn't care what the building looked like. I didn't care what the facilities looked like. The only thing I cared was about the culture and the people present in those facilities. And it's just, you know, I canceled every other trips, every other trip that I had, and I signed as soon as I could. Now, you listen to Samis Reyes speak, and he very clearly comes off as a smart guy. So while, yes, I'm sure he liked the culture with Washington, I think he also very much liked the opportunity with Washington. After Logan Thomas, right, there is zero proven depth for Washington at the tight end position. Gone is Jeremy Sprinkle. He is signed with the Dallas Cowboys. Gone is Thaddeus Moss. He was released by Washington. You do have Marcus Ball. You do have Tameric Hemingway, but ain't nobody just assuming that those two guys are going to be your TEs two and three in 2021. Maybe that ends up being the case, but that is so far from a certainty. After Logan Thomas, it is wide open real estate for Washington at tight end right now. And it remains so interesting, right, that Washington still has not signed any tight end in free agency. Reyes on Wednesday on conversations with Washington about how he fits in with Washington. Yes, I met, I met with the coaches and they, they thought I'll, I'll be a good fit for the team. Um, we haven't gotten into too many of the little uh, aspects of everything that's going to go into how they're going to be using me. But the biggest thing for me with, with making this decision was the culture, right? Because they have a culture where uh, 
Coach Rivera is that it, it, it's, I know he's a great guy and I know I truly admire him for everything that he has to go through, has been going through this past, you know, year. Um, so for me, it was more about, uh, making sure that I'm going to go to a place where they will teach me. And I think this is the place. All right. So he likes to bring up the culture and that's fine. And I don't think that he's lying when he says that. But to me, the opportunity is the thing. Samis Reyes has a chance, a real chance to make Washington's 53-man roster. We're a long way from that, but there's opportunity here because of the lack of proven depth at tight end beyond Logan Thomas. And you combine that with, yes, Rodden Rivera as the head coach. People love him. You combine that with, remember, Washington's tight ends coach, Pete Hayner, who has done a very good job in that role for years. He helped develop Greg Olson with the Carolina Panthers, helped develop Vernon Davis and Delaney Walker with the San Francisco 49ers, obviously helped to develop Logan Thomas last season. And Samis Reyes has a shot. Look, I said the other day on this podcast, we all need to learn from the Thaddeus Moss situation and stop overhyping people who haven't done anything. So I'm trying to walk that line here with our Samis Reyes conversation of talk up why he's here, deal with the fascinating aspects of his story, but also recognize that this is still a relative long shot. This guy working out into where he's a true player of consequence for Washington. But I'll go back to what I said just a few minutes ago. Has there ever been an NFL team or a team in sports period with all these incredible individual stories over like a 12 to 18 month period? The Washington football team is a team for which a quarterback overcame 17 surgeries on his right leg, overcame that right leg nearly being amputated, overcame nearly dying to lead the team to an NFC East title. The Washington football team is a team for which a quarterback who was studying for finals at ODU ended up quarterbacking the game of his life in a playoff loss to the eventual Super Bowl champion. The Washington football team is a team on which a seventh round rookie safety last season ended up being better than a $14 million per year safety. All of these things have happened. So if all of those things can happen, why can't Samis Reyes, despite having never played a single game of football in his life, end up making the team as a backup tight end. All right, for more now on Samis Reyes and a lot more regarding the Washington football team, we welcome to the Al Galdi podcast, Kent Lee Platty. He is the NFL analytics director for Pro Football Network. He is a Navy veteran. He is the inventor of the relative athletic score, a revolutionary way of analyzing player measurements and metrics from scouting combines and pro days. You can follow him on Twitter at MathBomb. Kent, it's great to have you on, man. How you doing? Fantastic, man. Glad you're having me. Appreciate you coming on very much. So before we truly get going here, how and why did you come up with the relative athletic score? So we always have these buzzwords that get thrown around during the during the draft time. You hear about how a guy is quick but not fast, or he's explosive, or he's he's agile. You know, there's all these buzzwords. They don't really mean anything without any context behind them. Um, so some years back, back in 2013, I started developing the system that would try to contextualize the testing a little bit better and try to give people an understanding, you know, how good a guy tested compared to his position group. Because a 4-5 means something completely different at wide receiver than it does at, say, defensive end. You know, it's okay for one, it's fantastic for the other. So all it does is it, it just puts all of those individual metrics on a 0 to 10 scale. It, it compiles that all into an average, and then it compares the average to every other player um, going back 35 years now. And it, it puts a 0 to 10 score on a player's athleticism 
there's always going to be one zero, which is the, the least scoring guy, and one guy that's at, at ten. Um, and that's that's all it is. It's at zero to ten. Everybody understands what zero to ten is, right? Zero is bad. Ten is fantastic. I think it's such a smart idea, and it's so true. Every year at this time, we are inundated with all of these measurements and all of these metrics, and it's like, okay, well, what exactly do they mean? What does that mean for this player, given his position, and you try to explore that? I would imagine, given that your data goes back 30-plus years, you are seeing the phenomenon of bigger, stronger, faster guys today, by and large, being more athletic, better than guys of yesteryear, or not necessarily? There's a lot of guys that tested really well back in the day, but I think in general, it, it has more to do with the fact that guys are training specifically for it now. You know, in 1987, the combine was only two years old. There wasn't a whole lot of guys out there training to run a 40-yard dash or figuring out how to run three-cone correctly. Now, they do, they spend months training for those sorts of things. Uh, so yeah, overall, you see that, that trend, but it's, it's been really fun watching the physical trends, how offensive linemen have gotten a little bit leaner, tight ends have gotten a little bit smaller, wide receivers shift from big guys to small guys every few years. It's been really nice tra- charting some of those trends. So the extent to which Washington's new tight end, Samis Reyes, did well in the relative athletic score really can't be overstated. He, per the RAS, tested as the most athletic size adjusted tight end to ever enter the NFL. I mean, that that is quite a statement. I just wonder if you could speak to that, like give it some context. How impressive were his measurables at that Florida Pro Day? Yeah, you don't see guys come out from international especially that that test really well. And then this guy comes out and just tests fantastic in everything. Um, You know, the the tight end is such a a heavily athletic-driven position. You don't get a lot of good tight ends or just on the lower level, not even counting the great guys, who aren't just fantastic uh, athletic specimens. So having having Reyes come in here and test as well as he did is, is a bit surprising. You're talking about a guy that's 6'5", 260, so he's, he's big for even for a tight end. Uh, bench press 31 times, that's 99th percentile. At a, at a 40-inch vertical, also 99th percentile. A 10'5 broad, which is 96th percentile. And then his 40-yard dash was a 4.65. That's 89th percentile. So his worst actual test was 89th percentile. That's that's kind of nuts when you look at it. It's incredible, especially given, of course, that he hasn't played football at the collegiate and NFL levels. Prior to Reyes, who had been the most athletic size-adjusted tight end to ever enter the NFL? Uh, Anthony Beck from the Jets, who's a first-round pick some years back, has, has held that for some time. Uh, Jordan Cameron, who was a, I think a third round pick from the Browns, he held it, held it briefly. The, he was very, very close and sometimes the metrics shift back and forth, but, um, there aren't a whole lot of guys that actually held on to that title. The, the current one is Anthony Beck, though, uh, like I said, former first round pick from the Jets. Um, another big, strong, fast guy that came out. Just got drafted in the liar because he actually played football. Yeah. So it's funny hearing those names, right? Anthony Beck, Jordan Cameron, like having great measurables is one thing. Being a great player is another. This is such a big topic every year at this time going into the NFL draft. How much truly do measurables matter? How do you answer that question? How much truly do these measurables matter? Yeah, it it depends on which position you're talking about specifically when we're talking about how much they matter. Uh, the important part is that you meet, you meet certain thresholds. You know, you don't, you don't want to have a guy that, that just isn't athletic enough compared to his peers to play in the NFL. You know, and using the tight end position as example, only one tight end in the last 20 years has had a 750 yard or greater receiving season. 
and it was Jordan Reed, and he was injured at the time when he did his combine. He only did a couple of the tests, and he didn't test very well. He did just enough to qualify. And he's the only one in 20 years to have gotten 750 yards or greater. And then you look at the guys who are above, you know, 9-5 uh, on this scale, and you've got, let's see, we've got Dustin Keller, Greg Olson, George Kittle, Kel- Kellen Winslow, Jason Witten, Jimmy Graham, Benjamin Watson, and Kobe Fleener, Dallas Clark, Vernon Davis, and Jordan Cameron. That's a big list of guys that have scored really well, and then there's only one guy who scored below average. You know, it's the top 5% versus the bottom 50%, and it's a huge difference. Who are some of those who stand out to you in terms of guys who did poorly when it came to the relative athletic score, but ended up having very good NFL careers? Oh, there's a ton of guys. You know, it, like I said, it's, it's, it should always be a part of, of how you evaluate players, but it should never be the evaluation. You should never look at the score and be like, well, I'm done with that guy now. Yeah. Um, you know, it's, you still gotta, you still gotta play the game. Sometimes guys just don't win in the same way. Um, my favorite example nowadays is to look at Orlando Brown from from the uh, the Ravens because Brown tested horribly. You know, it's it's hard to overstate just how bad he tested as an offensive tackle, not just below average, but really really bad. And that's not great, and that's part of the reason he went in the third round instead of the first round. That that cost him some money that he didn't test well. But Orlando Brown wins because he's very long. He's got broad shoulders, extremely long arms, and he's really smart in how he uses that length to beat guys that are trying to rush around the edge. He actually did an interview last year where he talked extensively about why he wins as a pro, and none of it has to do with being athletic and being really good at those things. So there are cases where it's just a guy doesn't test well, but he doesn't win that way. My my favorite example is always Anquan Bolden. Mm -hmm. Anquan Bolden was never fast. He was never quick or agile. But if the ball was in the air, you had to beat him to get that football. You had to beat Anquan Bolden physically in the air to get that ball. And nobody could do that for a long time. So sometimes it's just that they don't win that way. Um, sometimes it's injury. Jarvis Landry tested really poorly, but he also tested on a poor uh, injured hamstring. Darius Leonard from the Colts um, injured his hamstring while running the 40-yard dash. And didn't test as well. Sometimes it's, it's simple explanations as to why they didn't test well. Um, but normally it's just they don't win that way. So with the upcoming draft, so much conversation about the quarterbacks, which quarterback stands out to you the most in terms of his relative athletic score? Yeah, I was so mad because we didn't get, because of this lack of a combine, we didn't have a whole lot of quarterbacks that even tested. Justin Fields only ran the 40-yard dash. He did great. Trey Lance didn't test at all. We didn't see anything from Zach Wilson or Trevor Lawrence. So all of the big guys at the top, we, did, we didn't see a whole lot of testing from. Um, I will speak to Mac Jones because one of the only guys that I actually tested. Uh, because one of the big knocks on Mac Jones was that he wasn't athletic enough to win in the NFL, the way the NFL has been shifting towards guys that can work outside of structure. Now, I'm not a huge fan of Mac Jones on, on, on his tape, but he tested way better than a lot of people expected. Not in the elite range, not, not some top-tier athlete that's going to wow you with anything. Um, only one of his metrics was actually above 80th percentile. But a lot of people were expecting him to test poorly, and he didn't do that. He tested well. He tested above average for his position, about 72nd percentile. That's good. You know, you don't you don't see a guy that you expect to be poor that tests that well, and you're like, oh, well, you got to give him props for that. It's a lot better than people expected. Yeah, Davis Mills ran a surprisingly fast 40 at Stanford's Pro Day, right? Uh, yeah, he ran a 482. A lot of people didn't expect him to test that well either. Um, Actually, a, a couple of the guys that people didn't expect to test well at the quarterback position, 
Uh, Kyle Trask was another one. Um, tested better than expectations. None of them blew you out of the water. Yeah. But it's important for these guys to be able to go out and showcase that they do have the talent to play in the league. And the fact that all of those guys exceeded their expectations, even though they weren't fantastic, it's still better than people expected. That's got to help the draft stock. A lot of conversation in Washington about the linebacker position and the hope that either or both Penn State's Micah Parsons, Notre Dame's Jeremiah Owusu-Koromoa fall to Washington at 19. How do those two compare in the relative athletic score, Parsons and Owusu-Koromoa? Yeah, Parsons came in third in the class. He had a 9.59. And the only reason he wasn't higher was because we had Baron Browning and Jamin Davis um, from Ohio State and Kentucky, respectively. And those guys are just stupid good athletes. Um, Parsons ran a 4.36 at, at Penn State's Pro Day, though. That's that For a linebacker, that's insane. That's the best that I have in my database, which, again, that's 35 years' worth of data, and that's the high, or lowest time we've ever had from a linebacker. That's fantastic. Uh, he's explosive, he's got agile, and he's, he's got size. A lot of those guys that test really well for linebacker, they don't have really great size, which brings us to Owusu Koromoa, who tested poorly for his size, uh, he didn't run a 40-yard dash, but he did run uh, his, his agility drills and did his explosiveness drills, uh, all of which were really good. They're in that elite range. His, his worst test was a 36-and-a-half-inch vertical, which is 86th percentile for a linebacker in my database, and that was his worst test. Everything else was above 92nd percentile. We are so used to all the various drills that these guys run this time of year, right? The bench press of 225, the vertical leap, the 40-yard dash, etc. Do you wish that there were other drills that were done? Do you wish that the drills were done differently? Do you think that the way that things are done is just fine? What's your view on that? Oh, man, this stuff keeps me up at night. I, I love this stuff, and, and obviously I spend so much time on it. I've, I've put some thought into what we can change. Yeah. Um, I, I think these drills are, are a good representation of athletic traits. You know, People kind of make the mistake of thinking that they're trying to show what they do specifically on the field. You know, you see that a lot with offensive linemen. Offensive linemen never run 40 yards in a straight line. Yeah, you're correct. But off, uh, the 40-yard dash is one of the most – has one of the biggest correlations of any of the athletic tests to success for an offensive line. Oh, really? And that's not and that's not because they're testing how fast they can run in a straight line. It's because really athletic offensive linemen tend to do well. Yeah. And really, really offensive linemen tend to be able to run really fast in a straight line. You know, it's not that you're testing, oh, I, I, I've got this play where I want my offensive tackle to run 40 yards and block a guy. That's not what they're testing. They're testing a level of athleticism. Same thing with the vert and the broad. You want to have, you want to be able to test, can this guy explode out of his stance and blast somebody forward? Broad jump does a really good job showing that because you're using the lower body to push your, your weight forward over a distance. Vertical jump, you're doing the same thing just vertically. You know, it's all checking the individual stuff. And those those girls do a really good job, I think, of, of showing those types of athletic uh, abilities. I don't think we do a very good job of showcasing strength. Uh, the only drill that they use for that right now is the, the 225 bench press. And I don't think that's a very good reflection of functional strength for a football player. It's just so heavily reliant on a player's arm length. You know, you'll often see guys that get, oh, he's got, got 38, 40 bench reps. A lot of those guys have like 31, 31 inch arms, which is short for almost every position. And it's just a lot easier. It's, it's just basic physics. You know, you, you, the further out you move from, from your fulcrum, the easier, the harder it becomes, you know. So you get guys with 35 inch arms, they don't tend to bench press as much. That's not weakness, that's physics. And I think there's a lot better ways to showcase strength, doing something like a standing squat or something like that that really showcases that power that a lot of these guys have. 
That's really interesting, especially about the offensive linemen. Final moments with Kent Lee Platty, the NFL analytics director for Pro Football Network, the inventor of the relative athletic score. So you are formerly of Pride of Detroit, which is the SB Nation site for the Detroit Lions. For those listening, think Hogs Haven for the Washington football team. Washington, of course, now has Martin Mayhew as its general manager. He spent 15 years in the Detroit Lions organization and was their GM from September of 08 to November 2015. How do you look back upon Mayhew as Lions GM? Yeah, Mayhew gets a pretty bad rap because of the situation that he came into and the fact that they weren't able to win uh, over time with Mayhew over two different coaches. But Martin Mayhew took over an 0-16 team, and he was able to bring that team to the playoffs in three years. That's really tough to do. Um, a lot of that had to do with his first selection of, of Matthew Stafford. You know, getting Matthew Stafford is a huge boon to a football team that's starting out with that deep of a hole. Um, Mayhew made some mistakes as a, a general manager, and he really started he started to learn from most of them as he as he came along as a Lions GM. He tended to take smaller linebackers, which kind of liked him when he was in, in his playing days. Um, you know, smaller linebackers with speed, but not a lot of change of direction ability, not very explosive. He started to go away from that the further along that he got. And when he was working uh, with San Francisco, that that also changed. He didn't really do that anymore. Uh, he didn't prioritize athleticism on the offensive line, which I think is ultimately the biggest thing that sunk him was, was how little he prioritized that on the offensive line. They spent a lot of resources trying to fix the Lions' offensive line and trying to build it up, and they just couldn't get there. A lot of it had to do with just taking guys who weren't strong enough, who weren't quick enough, who couldn't hold up either outside or in. Um, but I think that he really started to learn from those things towards the end of his time here, and the Unfortunately, the winning just wasn't there, and he was, he was let go. Um, hopefully, he's learned from a lot of those things. It seems like he's learned from at least some of them enough that he's been able to get some some uh, interviews and obviously land a job. So hopefully, all of those things are better, and you guys will benefit for it. Hearing you talk about offensive linemen, do you think the team should emphasize athleticism more for their offensive lines? In general, you know, the, the, the closer you, the further you get from center, the more athleticism becomes important. I mentioned before how the tight end position is so athletically dependent. Right next to that's offensive tackle. Athletic, uh, offensive tackle in general is extremely athletic dependent because you're going against defensive ends. One of the most athletic players on a defense is going to be the defensive end for most teams. So you're, you want to be able to, to mirror those guys and counter their quickness and counter their explosiveness with your own. And it's the same thing in the run game. If this guy's going to be big, fast, and explosive, you've got to be big, fast, and explosive to get that guy off the line too. Um, at guard, it's a lot. It's a lot more dependent than you think it would be at guard. Um, center is one of those positions. I have I have no data that tells me it even matters that much at center. Hmm. Um, and I hate saying that because I'm a data guy. I want my data to be perfect and, and have everything nice wrapped up in a bow. But it just doesn't work that way. There's not really a lot of proof that it matters at center. Um, but I think overall, it's just a fundamental team building perspective. A lot of the better offensive lines in the NFL, the Dallas Cowboys over the last few years, the Philadelphia Eagles over the few years uh, during their Super Bowl time, uh, the Indianapolis Colts have done it for quite a few years now. They heavily prioritize athleticism on their offensive line, and it's worked to their benefit. You have a couple of teams that haven't as much. They prioritize power and size. Uh, the Pittsburgh Steelers, the Oakland Raiders, now the Las Vegas Raiders, those teams didn't prioritize athleticism as much because their type of offensive scheme prioritized power, the ability to move a guy rather than the ability to pull and do all those other neat schematic things. So it really depends on the type of scheme that you run. 
Um, obviously, I love I love athletic testing and track tracking. So my my preference between the two is to have the big, fast, athletic guys. Great stuff. He's an excellent follow on Twitter at MathBomb. He is Kent Lee Platty, the NFL analytics director for Pro Football Network, the inventor of the relative athletic score. Kent, thank you so much for your time. All the best. Appreciate it, man. Thanks for having me on. Well, as bad as the Nationals were on Tuesday night when they lost at the St. Louis Cardinals 14-3, that's how good the Nats were just a few hours later in a 6-0 win at the Cardinals on Wednesday afternoon to give the Nats, for the first time in this 2021 regular season, a series victory. Davey, if you would. I'm proud of the boys. Yes, Davey. There were many reasons for Davey Martinez to be proud of his boys for what they did on Wednesday afternoon. Joe Ross and four relievers combining on a four-hit shutout. And why don't we begin here with Joe Ross? He was tremendous for the Nationals on Wednesday afternoon. Great for a second time in as many starts this season. Six scoreless innings on five strikeouts versus four hits, two doubles and two singles, and one walk. He threw 63 of his 89 pitches for strikes. Ross was tremendous. Bottom of the third, gives up a one-out full count double to Tommy Edmond, despite him having been down in the count at 1.12. But Ross then struck out Paul Goldschmidt on four pitches, then got Nolan Arenado to ground out for the third out. So how about that? You let Edmond get aboard with one out. He's on second base. He's in scoring position. Two big boppers for the cards are coming up in Goldschmidt and Arenado, and you set them both down to get out of the inning unscathed. Ross, in a perfect bottom of the fourth, struck out Matt Carpenter and Justin Williams for the second and third outs, respectively. Ross, in the bottom of the sixth, gave up a two-out double to Nolan Arenado, but then struck out Yadier Molina on three pitches. So again, you get in some trouble, you get out of it, you make Yadier Molina look feeble in that plate appearance. Joe Ross was awesome on Wednesday afternoon, and this comes on the heels of what he did in his first start of this season. That one nothing loss at the Los Angeles Dodgers last Friday. Remember, that was Joe Ross's first meaningful game since making the emergency start for Max Scherzer in Game 5 of the 2019 World Series, right? Because Joe Ross opted out of the 2020 season due to the COVID-19 pandemic. So he hadn't pitched in forever in terms of meaningful pitching. He throws five scoreless innings in a game at the reigning defending World Series champion Dodgers last Friday. And then on Wednesday afternoon, he gives you six more scoreless innings in a win at the Cardinals. So Joe Ross over his two starts this season, 11 scoreless innings, nine strikeouts versus six hits and three walks. That's it. Joe Ross has been tremendous. He's been pounding the strike zone. This is the Joe Ross who we saw for, remember, a few years. It wasn't that long ago that Joe Ross was profiling to be like a good number four, maybe even number three starter in a rotation. He certainly felt like a guy who was going to be a fixture in Nats rotations for years to come. The last few seasons have been bumpy. He's dealt with injury. He's dealt with ineffectiveness. He spent a good chunk of the 2019 season in the minors. You know, it's been a rough ride for Joe Ross these last few seasons, right? Doesn't even pitch in 2020 due to the pandemic. Well, he's back this season and he's been very good so far this year. Really can't say enough. Like, if, if, honestly, if you're listing who have been the Nats' most pleasant surprises so far this year? And look, Nats are three and six, so it hasn't been a banner start to the campaign. But Joe Ross may well be at the top of that list with what he's given the Nats over his first two outings. Now, I mentioned it was Joe Ross and four relievers combining on the four-hitter. It was four Nationals relievers combining for three scoreless and hitless innings on Wednesday afternoon. And the good news here, especially for the Nats, is that Davey didn't have to burn any of his true A relievers for this game. Brad Hand did not pitch. Daniel Hudson 
did not pitch. Tanner Rainey did, that's true, but you got four games coming up against the Arizona Diamondbacks Thursday night through Sunday afternoon. So it's not like you have an off day on Thursday. You may have to lean on the pen quite a bit over the next few days. We'll see. Hopefully not, but who the heck knows. So it's good that you were able to rest the likes of Hand and Hudson in this game on Wednesday afternoon. Now, things did get dicey in the bottom of the seventh. Sam Clay in the bottom of the seventh recorded the first two outs, but also issued a one-out five-pitch walk to pinch hitter Austin Dean and a two-out hit-by-pitch to Edmundo Sosa on a 1-2 pitch. Tanner Rainey then came in. He recorded the final out in that bottom of the seventh, but not before issuing a two-out five-pitch walk to pinch hitter Dylan Carlson to load the bases. So a little dicey in that seventh inning. But Wander Suero, who has been used a ton already this year by Davey, Wander Suero's getting a Sean Doolittle treatment of being worked uh, right into the ground early in the year, although Suero kind of likes this stuff. This is how Suero is. Anyway, Suero, he's been good. Perfect eighth inning on Wednesday. That included a four-pitch strikeout of Paul Goldschmidt for the first out. And Austin Voth tossed a perfect ninth inning. You know, it's funny with this Nationals bullpen, if you take out Luis Avilan and the disastrous outing that he had in that 14-3 loss on Tuesday night. Remember, in that game, the Cardinals had a nine-run fifth inning. Avilan in that nine-run fifth allowed six runs, three earned. If you take that outing out of things, and I know that's a big outing to remove from things, but if you do that, Nationals relievers in this series at St. Louis, again, that's when two out of three, combined to allow one run in 10 and the third innings. So really, it was one outing that doomed the overall numbers. But without that outing, this is actually a very good series for the Nationals bullpen that hasn't gotten a lot of attention. It's worth noting. Without Avilon and the disaster that was, again, six runs, three earned in one inning, Nats relievers one run in 10 and the third innings over the three games at St. Louis. As for the Nationals offense, nine hits, seven walks on Wednesday afternoon, and nobody stood out more then Josh Harrison. So Josh Harrison was one of those COVID-19 protocol guys. He missed the Nats for six games of this season. He was the starting second baseman in all three games in this series. He was the number seven batter in games one and two, was the number five batter on Wednesday afternoon, won the lineup in a moment. And Harrison was great in this series, six for 11 with a double, five singles, two walks, and three RBI. Harrison on Wednesday afternoon, two for three with two walks, and an RBI. He had a one-out four-pitch walk in the top of the second, a two-out first-pitch single in the top of the third, a two-out RBI single in the Nats two-run fifth, and a two-out full-count walk in the top of the seventh. You know, Josh Harrison, it's funny because he wasn't supposed to be an everyday player for the Nats this year, right? It was supposed to be Carter Keyboom at third base, Starling Castro at second base. Well, the Keyboom thing has become a debacle. Castro has had to serve as the everyday third baseman. That has thrust Harrison into the lineup as the everyday second baseman. And look, it's only three games, but so far, so very good for Josh Harrison. And remember how the Nats got Josh Harrison. Josh Harrison was an in-season acquisition for the Nationals last year. He was released by the Philadelphia Phillies off having been bad for them, off having been bad for the Detroit Tigers in 2019. Comes to the Nats, ends up having a 352 on base percentage for the Nats over the rest of that 2020 season. And now he's off to a very good start so far this year. Josh Harrison had some very good seasons for the Pittsburgh Pirates, but he's another one of these discarded veterans who Mike Rizzo brings to the Nats and the veteran finds himself life with the Nats, finds himself reborn with the Nats. This has happened quite a few times in recent years. As Drupal Cabrera, Gerardo Parra, Greg Holland, Edwin Jackson, a number of veterans discarded by other teams picked up by the Nats on the cheap. I mean, the Nats pay these guys nothing, 
and these guys are like reborn with the Nets. Mike Rizzo, in a lot of ways, has found a new market inefficiency. The DFA'd veteran, the released veteran, the discarded veteran who can play at a high level, isn't as good as he was at his peak, but it's not like he's a total lost cause either. And Josh Harrison has certainly joined that list with what he did again for the Nats last year and what he's done so far this year. Very good to see what Harrison did at the Cardinals. Ryan Zimmerman, speaking of old guys, how about Zim on Wednesday afternoon? So he is the Nats starting first baseman, not Josh Bell. Bell getting the day off. Zimmerman actually was the number three batter and Zimmerman goes one for four with a walk and two RBI and his hit was a big one, a one out, full count, two-run homer to left center in the top of the third off another old guy, the Cardinals starter, Adam Wainwright. Zim was so good in this plate appearance. He was down 0-2. He battled Wainwright to the point that the plate appearance ended up being a nine-pitch plate appearance, and Zimmerman ends up the victor with that shot to left center. What a job by Zimmerman in that plate appearance. Juan Soto on Wednesday afternoon, two for five with an RBI. He had a one-out full-count single in the Nats two-run third, a full-count RBI double in the Nats two-run fifth, despite having been down in the count at 1.12, and Soto grounded into a one-out run-scoring force-out in the top of the sixth inning. You know, Soto, it's so easy to take him for granted. Juan Soto, over the three games of the Cardinals, went six for 12. Six for 12 with a double, five singles, a walk, and three RBI. So great to see that. There was a boo-boo from Soto. We'll get to that momentarily. Good to see Trey Turner have a good game on Wednesday afternoon. He had struggled over the first two games in this series. Turner over games one and two uh, combined 0 for 8 with four strikeouts. But Turner on Wednesday as the number one batter, two for four with two doubles, a walk, and an RBI. He had a leadoff first pitch double in the Nats two-run fifth, a five-pitch walk in the Nats one-run sixth, and a two-out first pitch RBI double in the top of the eighth. That truth be told, wasn't a true double, okay? It was a lazy fly ball that landed between three Cardinals fielders in no man's land in shallow left field. It's odd. The Cardinals are known for their fundamentals, but the Cardinals had some major communication issues in the outfield over the course of the three games here. Terrible communication in that spot. Three Cardinals and the ball drops in the middle of the field. You know, three guys, one ball. Wasn't that a YouTube video a few years ago? No, that was two girls, one cup. That's something very different. Anyway, Turner gets a double out of that because there's no error assessed on the play because the way the dopey error rules work, you can't really assess an error when no one touches the baseball. There should be team errors for something like that because that was not a double. That was not some like laser off the wall. That was, again, a lazy fly ball into no man's land in shallow left field. Should have been an out. Ends up being a two-base hit for Trey Turner. We won't complain about that from Trey's perspective, but just understand that was a double that in a lot of ways wasn't a double. But good to see Trey Turner with a multi-hit game and also drawing a walk-off again, uh, having had some problems at the plate over the first two games in the series. And Sterling Castro, who overall did struggle in the series, he had himself a one-out double on a one-two pitch in the top of the second. And I also want to give some props to Andrew Stevenson, who delivered as a pinch hitter in this series. Stevenson in the 5-2 win at the Cardinals on Monday night. The big pinch leadoff home in the right field in the top of the seventh for a 4-2 Nats lead. And Stevenson on Wednesday, a one-out full count six-pitch walk in the Nationals. One run, eighth inning. Now, there were some negatives in this game, and I want to make mention of them real quick. So, Victor Robles was the starting center fielder in every game in this series. He was the leadoff batter, the number one batter in games one and two, as has been the case for so much of this season so far. But very interestingly, Robles was the number nine batter on Wednesday afternoon. Yes, Davey Martinez did the thing of batting the starting pitcher, Joe Ross, eighth, and batting Robles, ninth. 
as the great men on film used to say on In Living Color back in the day. Hated it. Yeah, I did hate it. I did not like it for a variety of reasons. But the basic one is this. When you're constructing a lineup, it's not about going lefty-righty, lefty-righty. It's not about certain guys who do certain things batting in certain spots. It's actually very simple. You want your best batters to get the most played appearances possible. And so what you want to do is bat your best batters near the top of the lineup, okay? Essentially, your best four hitters should be your first four hitters, you know? And and you should almost like work down in a descending order of your best batters going throughout the lineup, you know? So like, you don't have to necessarily do your best batter in the number one spot, or you're probably actually better off doing like your best on base percentage guy or one of your best OBP guys in the number one spot. And then your two best hitters for sure should be in the two, three spots. A good hitter is in the four spot, you know, a lesser hitter is in the five spot and so on and so forth. This thing though, which I believe Tony LaRussa, if not invented, then pioneered of batting the pitcher eighth. So you bat a second leadoff man ninth. I've never liked and it can cost you. And sure enough, you could argue it cost the Nats on Wednesday afternoon. Now look, Victor Robles did not have a good series, okay? Victor Robles ultimately in the series won for 11 with a walk. Uh, the one was big. It was actually a triple on the very first pitch thrown in the series. But Robles struck out eight times. He did not look very good at the plate in this series. But how about what happened on Wednesday afternoon? So Robles goes 0 for 3 with a walk with three strikeouts. So again, he wasn't very good. But in the, in the top of the second inning, Joe Ross, again, starting pitcher, number eight batter, comes up with the bases loaded and one out, okay? Now, whatever you think about Victor Robles and the extent to which he struggled in this series, who would you rather have up in that spot? Joe Ross or Victor Robles? Again, bases loaded, one out. And what happens? Joe Ross does what pitchers do all the time, strikes out on three pitches. To me, there should be a universal DH, but for now, there isn't. Ross, as the number eight batter, came up in that spot and was feeble. He was incapable. Now, look, Robles then came up and he struck out. He struck out on six pitches for the third out. So if you're screaming that right now, listening to this podcast, I hear you. However, the point is Joe Ross should not have been up in that spot. Now, it's funny. To Ross's credit, he did have a hit later in the game. He had a one-out single in the Nats one-run six inning. But also in that inning was Robles getting on base. He drew a one-out full count six-pitch walk despite having been down in the count at one point, one, two. But don't get too cute with the lineups. It's actually very simple. Lineup construction is not complicated. Get your best batters the most played appearances possible. Over the course of a 162-game season, each spot in the lineup is worth about 17 played appearances over the course of a year. So understand, like if you do something like bat Juan Soto fourth instead of bat Juan Soto second, over the course of a season, that's costing you 34 Juan Soto played appearances. Is that something that you want to do? You know, no. Get your best batters the most played appearances possible. Uh, also, another negative from this game. Another out for the Nats on the base paths. Juan Soto got caught trying to steal second base for the third out in the top of the sixth inning. You had runners at the corners. You had Ryan Zimmerman batting, albeit with an 0-2 count. The Cardinals reliever Jordan Hicks didn't even throw home. He threw to second base, threw to Matt Carpenter, and Carpenter was there. And Soto didn't even uh, hit the brakes and get into a rundown. He just slid into second, got tagged out, and that was done. The run scoring threat was over. Had Soto gotten to a rundown, maybe Victor Robles, who was on third base, ends up scoring 
Instead, Juan Soto gets gunned down. I, I don't like this thing of Juan Soto trying to become a base dealer here all of a sudden this season. I- I'm all for guys trying to improve and make their games as well-rounded as possible. And I can respect Juan Soto for trying to do that. But, you know, if you're going to run, you better run with a success rate that's up there. You know, you, if you're going to steal bases, you got to do it at like a 70, 75% efficiency at least. If not, you're really doing your team more harm than good. And Soto right now has gotten tagged out multiple times trying to steal. You know, the other thing with Soto too is like, why even risk the injury? He's maybe the best hitter on the planet. Like, that's good enough, Okay. You know, I, I know you want to be more well-rounded. That's that's laudable, but you don't have to be, okay? You are an elite-level batter. Just be an elite-level batter, okay? That is that is going to get you paid. That is going to bring so much joy to so many Nationals fans so, for so many years to come. But this has happened way too much already this year. And I feel like we have this conversation about the Nats every April, but way too many outs on the base pass already this season and yet another one in that game on Wednesday afternoon it was also a rough game for Kyle Schwarber although he was very good in games one and two but Schwarber on Wednesday 0 for 5 with three strikeouts but bottom line the Nats get the win they needed this win look I wanted them to go four and five minimum over the first nine games of this season given the COVID-19 protocol absences given the stiffness of the competition right three games at home against the Atlanta Braves three games at the Los Angeles Dodgers three games at the St. Louis Cardinals you could argue those three teams are the three divisional favorites in the National League, right? Dodgers, the clear favorites in the NL West, although the San Diego Padres could have something to say about that. Cardinals, the favorites in the Central, and the Braves, three-time reigning defending National League East champions. So, I mean, this was a tough spot without the COVID-19 absences. It became an even more difficult spot with the COVID-19 absences. The hope was to go four and five or better, in my mind anyway, kind of tread water that way. You go three and six. Uh, it's not good, but it's also not the end of the world. You are now mostly healthy. Hopefully, John Lester is good to go at some point soon. And you have up next now a four-game series against an Arizona Diamondbacks club at Nationals Park. And you're beginning a seven-game homestand, number one. But number two, the Diamondbacks are not a very good team. And the Diamondbacks are off to a bad start. Arizona is four and eight. Arizona just got swept in a two-game series at home against the Oakland A's. So you got a chance to start making some hay, especially when you consider the Nationals are going to be starting three of their top pitchers in this series, at least three of their top pitchers in theory. You're starting Patrick Corbin, you're starting Steven Strasburg, you're starting Max Scherzer. So that's what you're looking at for this series. Now look, if the Patrick Corbin we saw in his first outing is who we see on Thursday night, then that's a problem. But Corbin, I think, is better than that and hopefully will prove that on Thursday night. It is a big spot for him, though. Game one against uh, Corbin's former team, right? The Diamondbacks. Thursday night at 7.05. It'll be Corbin versus Merrill Kelly. And yeah, Corbin's coming off that outing last Saturday night, that 9-5 loss at the Dodgers. Corbin, six runs in four into third innings on six hits, a homer, two doubles, and three singles and three walks versus five strikeouts. He in that game threw just 48 of his 80 pitches for strikes. So an opportunity for old Corby to bounce back on Thursday night, just like the Nationals bounce back on Wednesday afternoon. Well, don't look now, but the Wizards. Yes, I said the Wizards. The damn Washington Wizards. Yes, that team, our team, it now has won four out of five. Another win on Wednesday night, a 123-111 win at the Sacramento Kings as the Wizards move even closer to the 10th spot in the Eastern Conference. Why does the 10th spot matter? Because there is a playoff play-in tournament this season. 
in the NBA. Going to take place after the regular season, before the first round of the NBA playoffs. will include the teams with the 7th highest through 10th highest winning percentages in each conference. So this season, it's not so much about being one of the top 8 teams in the conference as it is about being one of the top 10 teams in the conference, although there is a decided advantage to being one of the top 8 teams because the teams with the 7th highest and 8th highest winning percentages in each conference each has two opportunities to win one game to earn playoff spots. The teams with the ninth highest and 10th highest winning percentages in each conference each has to win two consecutive games to earn playoff spots. But yes, the Wizards are closer to 10th because also on Wednesday night was the Chicago Bulls losing at home to the Orlando Magic 115-106. That's the East that the Bulls lose at home to the pathetic Magic. So the Wiz now are within one game of the Bulls for 10th in the Eastern Conference. Also a game behind the Bulls, by the way, is the Toronto Raptors. They beat the San Antonio Spurs 117-112 on Wednesday night. But yeah, if you're looking for something to care about with the Wizards, if you're saying, well, are the Wizards playing with a purpose as this season winds down? Uh, they are. They're trying to get to 10th in the Eastern Conference. The damn Washington Wizards! Exactly, Stephen A. Such is life when you're a Wizards fan that getting to 10th in the East is of import. Uh, also, there's this with the Wizards, and this is bizarre. The Wizards now, with this win at the Kings, are 13-10 and 10 against Western Conference teams this season, as compared to 8-23 and 23 against Eastern Conference teams this season. The West is, for I think the 47th consecutive season, better than the East this season. It happens every year in the NBA. And yet, our Wizards are 13 and 10 against the West versus 8 and 23 against the East. You can always email me, the Al Galdi podcast at yahoo.com. Mike in Sterling, Virginia wrote me, said, in the bizarro world of the Washington Wizards, their schedule is actually softening as starting tonight, as in last night, eight of the next 11 games are against Western Conference foes with only games against Detroit and Cleveland twice mixed in. Of course, they then have a brutal closing stretch of eight straight Eastern Conference games to finish the season. I guess they need to harvest their nuts right now. Yes, a classic saying from Eddie Jordan many years ago. But yeah, man, the Wizards won at the Kings on Wednesday night. Now, the Kings aren't very good, but again, neither are our Wizards, and yet the Wiz got the job done, and got the job done in relative stress-free fashion. Wizards never trailed by more than one point the entire game. Wizards led for the entire second half, won the first quarter 42-31, led by 19 points in the second quarter, led by double digits for most of the fourth quarter. Wiz held the Kings to 9-27 on threes. Now, the Wiz themselves did not shoot the three well, just 7-24, but the Wizards were excellent on twos, 40 of 66 on twos. The Wizards demolished the Kings on the boards, out-rebounded Sacramento 56-31, including 14-5 in offensive rebounds. So each team, interestingly, finished with 13 second-chance points. It's not like the Wizards dominated the Kings in that regard, but the Wizards were plus 25 in rebounding margin. And the Wizards won despite committing 26 turnovers. That was like the one thing, well, that and shooting threes, I guess, the two things. But the Wizards were awful at taking care of the basketball on Wednesday night. 26 turnovers. The Kings finished with 17 steals, but the Wizards ended up winning. Uh, Bradley Beal, just two of eight on threes, but eight of 14 on twos, nine and nine on free throws. Finished with 31 points, four rebounds, and three assists, though he did have five turnovers. Russell Westbrook had seven turnovers, but he, yes, had another triple-double. That's now six consecutive triple-doubles. That's now... 
24 triple-doubles on the season, extending his single-season career and franchise records. And Westbrook, also in the game with this triple-double, gets to 170 career regular season triple-doubles. He actually has an outside shot at setting a new NBA record for career regular season triple-doubles. The all-time mark is Oscar Robertson's 181 career regular season triple-doubles. Westbrook, again now, is at 170. He's 11 shy. He can do this, okay? I mean, the guy is one triple-double after another. So yeah, he can break the record of the big O this season. Uh, Westbrook on Wednesday night, 25 points, 15 rebounds, and 11 assists to go with four steals. Like I said, did have the seven turnovers, but he shot the ball pretty well. Over two on threes, but 12 of 20 on twos. Now, the Wizards' other three starters were mixed, talking about Rui Hachimura, Denny Avdia, and Alex Len. But the Wizards' bench was productive for a second consecutive game. That was one of the real keys to that Wizards win at the NBA-leading Utah Jazz This past Monday night, 125-121. Again, the Wizards own the West, but the bench was quite good for a second straight game on Wednesday night. Davies Bertans, four of seven on threes, 16 points, four rebounds, had the best plus minus rating of the game of plus 20. Ish Smith, 10 points on four six shooting, three assists versus one turnover and three rebounds. Daniel Gafford went just one of five shooting off the bench, but he had six rebounds and two steals in just 15 minutes, 39 seconds. And Robin Lopez in 13 minutes, 45 seconds off the bench, six points on two of two shooting and five rebounds. So yeah, the Wizards are making things interesting. Again, if you care about them getting the 10th spot in the East. I mean, personally, I don't. I'm not invested in that. I'm not really that worked up about it. There's a much bigger picture with the Wizards that's very alarming, and that is that this team, through 54 games this season, is 12 games below 500 at 21 and 33, despite playing in the lesser of the two NBA conferences. This is supposed to be, what, a top five, top six seeded team in the East. Instead, the team is having to scratch and claw and fight for 10th in the East. So yeah, uh, pardon me if I'm not doing cartwheels over this, but the Wizards have been better lately. And again, the Wizards feast on the West. I don't know why this is. It doesn't make any sense. But then again, neither do our Wizards. Next up for the Wiz, four consecutive home games, three of which, yes, are against Western Conference teams, starting with Friday night, New Orleans Pelicans at Capital One Arena at seven. All right, no Orioles game on Wednesday night as they got rained out for a second time in three nights. So on Thursday, we have a single admission doubleheader against the Seattle Mariners at Camden Yards for the second time in three days. Uh, game one, 12-35, Matt Harvey versus Marco Gonzalez. Game two, Bruce Zimmerman versus Justin Dunn. Also on Thursday, the Capitals play home to the NHL worst Buffalo Sabres at seven. That is one good thing about the Caps being in the ultra-tough East Division this season. Yeah, you got to play the likes of the New York Islanders and the Pittsburgh Penguins and the Boston Bruins a bunch, but you also have gotten the chance to feast on the hapless Sabres and feast the Caps have on Old Buffalo for so much of this year so far. Another game against the Sabres Thursday night at 7 o'clock. Caps lead the East Division by two points on the Islanders. Have won three straight the last two games by a combined score of 14-2. Now, this game on Thursday night is set to be the 1,000th career regular season game for Nicholas Backstrom. Yes, a 1,000 career regular season games for old Backy. He will become just the second player in Capitals history to play a 1,000 career regular season games with the Caps, joining, of course, Alex Ovechkin. Backstrom also will become just the second active player 
to reach the 1,000 regular season game mark with at least 700 career regular season assists. The other guy is Sidney Crosby. And how about this? Only 23 players in NHL history had at least 700 regular season assists over 1,000 career regular season games to begin those players' careers. Of those 23 players, 21 are members of the Hockey Hall of Fame, while two are not yet eligible in Crosby and Yarmir Yager. And that's the thing with Backstrom that I think is going to be so interesting. He is Hockey Hall of Fame worthy. I think he should be in the Hall of Fame. I certainly hope he gets into the Hockey Hall of Fame. Uh, we'll see. I mean, it's always kind of tricky with stuff like this. We know Ovechkin's a slam dunk Hall of Famer. I think it's Hall of Famers that the Caps have had during this Rock the Red era. I think it's both Ovechkin and Backstrom. And something like this that's happening on Thursday night does make you, I think, recognize that and appreciate him. And he should be appreciated. You know, no, he's not been as good as Ovechkin, but nobody else has been as good as Ovechkin in the history of the Caps. Like, Ovechkin is the best player in the history of the franchise. You could very much argue Backstrom's number two. Like, I know there are a lot of guys you can nominate, you know, Peter Bondra, et cetera. But Backstrom, to me, there is an excellent case to be made that he's the second best player in the history of the Capitals. Also with the Caps, we had very good news on Wednesday. The Caps announcing the re-signing of forward Connor Sheary to a two-year, $3 million contract. So Sheary had been set to become an unrestricted free agent after this season. Oh, by the way, the Caps re-signing of Sheary leaves just two guys in terms of significant free agents to be in terms of forwards for the Capitals this coming offseason. One guy is the recently acquired Michael Roffel. The other guy, yes, Alex Ovechkin. This doesn't get talked about like at all, but this is a contract season for Alex Ovechkin. Now, I think the reason it hasn't gotten a lot of attention is because everyone expects Ovi to be re-signed, and I think he will re-sign, but understand that. This is the final season of Alex Ovechkin's mega money contract that he signed many years ago. January 2008, a 13-year, $124 million deal. Time flies when you're arguably the greatest goal scorer in NHL history. 13-year, $124 million deal all the way back in January 2008, and this is the final season of that contract. Isn't that something? But getting back to Sheary, Connor Sheary's been such a bright spot for the Caps so far this year. And what a great signing he was by Caps Senior Vice President and General Manager Brian McClellan this past offseason. The Caps, this past December 22nd, announced the signing of Sheary to a one-year $735,000 contract. He, in the 2019-2020 season, had played for both the Buffalo Sabres and the Pittsburgh Penguins, who reacquired him February 2020. Sheary won back-to-back Stanley Cup titles with the Pens in 2016 and 2017. Sheary has been outstanding for the Caps. Sheary, as we speak on this Thursday so far this season, fourth on the Caps with 11 goals, second among Caps players who have each played in at least 20 games in five-on-five shot attempt percentage at 52. And Sheary, as of the time of the announcement of this contract extension on Wednesday, number eight among all NHL players, each with at least 40 games this season, in goals per 60 minutes of five-on-five play at 1.26. Sheary has been really good for the Caps this season. LaViolette loves Sheary. Nice to see him rewarded. Nice to see the Caps get him off the market for this upcoming offseason as well. All right, that will do it for you and me for now. Keep the feedback coming. You can tweet me at Al Galdi. You can email me, the Al Galdi podcast 
at yahoo.com. I made it through this podcast. So far, so good in terms of my body's reaction to the first of my two Moderna, or is it Moderna, COVID-19 vaccine shots. Hopefully, I'm back with you on Friday. I think I will be. I think I'll be just fine. Have a great rest of your Thursday. Hey, the